Spring break. Doing good. Uh, my name is Derek. I'm the pastor here. If you're visiting Atlanta, welcome to our city. Um, we're in a series called The Emotional Jesus. It's uh, six Sundays long. I think this is week four. And we've set aside some weeks to just look at these moments in the life of Jesus where he gets emotional. He cries. He uh, gets angry. Actually, next week is Jesus Gets Angry. Uh, and our own Jamie Vernon is going to be uh, preaching next week, which is very interesting because I've never seen Jamie angry. So I'm kind of hoping for, like, something to happen, you know. So I don't know, just email him some ideas, but I want to see some stuff go down. Uh, I want a front row seat. Uh, but anyway, so he'll be doing that next week. And then uh, anyway, we move towards Easter with this. Um, we've had a, a verse or two, two verses really that we've put in front of us every week. And this comes from Hebrews chapter 4. And the writer is talking about Jesus. And he says, for we do not have a high priest who is unable to what? To sympathize with our weaknesses. So this is the writer's way of saying that Jesus gets it. Jesus was not floating through history detached from human suffering, from human emotions, from the world as it is. And so the writer is reminding us that Jesus was God in person. And part of in person means that he was a person. He got to feel the same things that we feel, the ups and the downs and the ins and outs of all that, all that life gives us. So the writer is saying we, we have this God who, when we're hurting, he says, I know. I've been there. When we're in pain, I know I've been there. When we're doubting, believe it or not, Jesus can say, I've been there. And so what a fantastic way of encouraging us. He says, but we have one who uh, has been tempted in every way. Now, temptation for us always leads to sin. I know that's where we go, and that's a good place to go. It, it has something to do with that. But the word itself is broader than just sin. The word temptation means trial. It means you're standing at a crossroads and you don't know what to do. And you're afraid if you make the wrong turn, bad stuff will happen. And perhaps it will. And so sometimes a crossroads or a temptation or a trial is just, I don't know what to do. And now in this case, the writer qualifies as saying, and yet Jesus didn't fall short. He was without sin. It's fantastic. Next slide. Let us then approach the throne of grace with what? Say it. Confidence. Not, God, I know you have better things to do, and I know that this is small stuff, but I'm scared. No, the writer says you can come to God with confidence so that we may receive mercy and find grace to help us in our time of need. So hopefully, uh, as we look at this each week, that you're starting to memorize that or at least recognize it. So that's that. Today, um, the next emotion that we're going to look at is quite extraordinary. But let me tell you the story. This is a photo of my van. Um, do you like it? Yeah. Thank you. Uh, let me give you some backstory. It's a 1971 15-window Volkswagen van Westfalia. For those in the club, it's called a Westie. Um, engine's in the back. I don't know how many miles per gallon it gets. I actually don't even know how many miles are actually on the van. I do still have the Oregon license plate that came with it. It's in the glove compartment. So I have this dream in my head that it's the same van that um, Donald Miller rode in across the country from Austin to uh, Portland when he moved there, and he wrote about it in his book, Through Painted Deserts, but that's just a pipe dream. Um, it has no air conditioning. 
The windows roll down, but you have to do it. Isn't that amazing? Um, the rear view mirror or the, the side mirror on the other side, that's a team effort. So if you've got to have that thing adjusted, it's, I tell my wife, roll down the window, fix the window. We have this argument like, no, too much, too little, too, forget it, I'll get out and do it. Um, it's team effort to drive in the van. It's hard to drive. There's no stereo. I mean, come on, there's no stereo. I need a stereo so I can play my Grateful Dead CDs. Um, I mean my worship CDs. Same thing. No. Um, sorry. I'm kidding. Kind of. The, uh, yeah, so that's the van. It's uh, made in Germany. The seatbelts are unsafe because they're the original ones. Uh, they're hard to get on, and they're definitely harder to get off. So if it tumbles over and there's sort of an inferno, it's over. Um, but doesn't it look sweet, right? Now, here's the thing. My neighbor who lives in our building who is German, insists that I name the van Gretel because I haven't named it yet. So what do you think about the name? Yes or no? No. Okay, that's a no then because first service said no too. Um, If you've been with me in the van riding around town, you know that it's not unlike being with a celebrity of the lowest kind in parentheses because at every stoplight, we stop, and then the other cars pull up, the windows come down, and all the statements and questions start coming. Like, where'd you get her? It's always a her. Where'd you get her? How much is she? Which sounds weird. Uh, how much did you pay for her? What year is she? All these sorts of things. Uh, I've had, my favorite is when I'm at the stoplight, particularly here, particularly here uptown, and it's a busy day, and right beside me pulls up this, like, $75,000 car. And the guy's in the suit, and he looks at me, and he goes... So, glad I could make his day. I've been in coffee shops where I look out the window, it's parked, and people, like, they're looking at it, they take pictures of it, they call their friends over and walk around it, they, you know, put it on their Facebook or their Twitter, people look in the window. I've even seen a guy get inside of it. Because the doors don't lock either. So, you know, what do you do? But here's the thing, like, about once a month, too, there'll be a note on the window that says, I want to buy your van, and then there's like a phone number and an email address. I keep a file of those, you know, just, just when I'm ready. Like, I'll just go through the list. Um, but the weirdest story, because all those stories are like, everybody likes to talk about the van they had, or um, some, of them, some of the conversations I hear are inappropriate like baby boomers will come up to me and just basically confess everything they've done in a van like that. And it's like, I don't even know who you are, but right on. Um, There's just something about the van that just breaks the wall down. But they're usually joyous, like, man, I used to have one of these. We had six of these. My dad and I would go camping in these and whatever. Um, But the weirdest story is this. Christmas last year, I had ordered something from Linux. And as you all know, Linux at Christmas time is so peaceful. So I needed to get in there 10 minutes tops just to pick it up and come out. So I give the parking lot a once-over, and I decide, forget it. I'm just going to have to pay for the parking. So I pay the 5 bucks to park in front of the mall. Kind of feel cool, actually. So I park the van in the parking lot. I run in, get the stuff. I come back out of the mall, and I'm walking up to the van, and there's this guy standing behind the van. Like they all do. They just stand behind the van. 
And he's like this classic, like 55, 56-year-old buckhead guy. Pressed iron jeans, loafers, no socks, sweater, shirt collar up, $200 realtor hairdo, first name Waiyuka. It was perfect. I mean, he was just like looking at the van. And so I walk up next to him, and I just stand there with him. And he doesn't even look at me. And he says, is this your van? Yeah, it's my van. I mean, look at me, it's my van. (laughs) And so we just stand there, nothing. He's just, and then he says, and I quote, I'll trade you my Porsche Boxster for it right now. Yeah. (laughs) Which happened to be parked right beside the van. So I'm giving it like, looking at the Porsche, looking at the van, looking at the Porsche, looking at the van, looking at the Porsche. Then I'm having this conversation in my head like, I don't think that I want to spend the rest of my career as a pastor explaining how I ended up with a Porsche. Because that's what it would be, right? No, I'll drive. You have a Porsche. Well, here's the story. So I get back over here beside the guy, and I said something profound like, (laughs) and that was it. (laughs) So here we are just, and I don't know what he was thinking. Like, I kind of want to know what he was thinking because he never said anything. The only thing he said at the end of the conversation was, man, I miss this. And he walked away. And so in my head, I'm like, what was he thinking? Right? Was he just reliving? Was he weighing everything else in life that he had done, and now he's back where he started, thinking if I could just get back there? I don't know. I have no idea. It was a theological moment that I have no answers to. But what I do know is this. It takes people like that, and I get them every day. Because it's my van. I don't I don't think it's that exciting. I mean, I kind of do. It's cool, you know. I get in and driving around, come to work, go home, whatever, just like your car. But I don't stand in front of my van every day and go, wow, isn't she awesome? We just don't do that because it's so, like what? It's so familiar. It's just what we do day in and day out. And it's really not that great of a situation, right? Again, there's no AC. There's no stereo. It's a team effort to get the thing going. It's hard to drive on and on. It's got like all these beds in it, but two of them have holes in it. It's like, it's just not the best situation. But for people who don't have it, they just, they're willing to like trade me their totally sweet car for it. And so every time I have a conversation like that with somebody, and they take five minutes out of their day to stand up and say something or just stare at the van, I'm reminded that it's very, very easy for me to lose interest in the things that are so close to me. Does that make sense? And you know what I'm talking about. I mean, we buy new stuff all the time, but it's really just new, newer stuff of the stuff we have, right? Um, we get bored with our homes. We get bored with our material possessions. We get bored with our relationships. People have affairs because they're bored. It's just boring. And so we, we know that 
it's very easy for us to be so close to something all the time that we don't really see it anymore. I don't see what the people are seeing when they see my van. I don't see that anymore. I used to, but I don't anymore. And the same goes for everything else in life. The more familiar we're with, the more familiar we are with something, we see it less and less. But here's the problem. God calls us, each of us, to remain engaged and excited about stuff. And one of the things that he calls us to remain engaged with and excited about all the time and to always see it fresh, and I know this is just maybe anticlimactic, but it's, it's the place where you live. It's the city, the neighborhood, your community. He constantly calls us back to remain engaged and excited about where we live and to see where we live always in a fresh way. Today, as we get further along in this series on some of the emotions of Jesus, I want to look at this really interesting story. It's very short in Luke chapter 19, if you have a Bible. The page number's on the screen if you picked up a house Bible. Um, I think we're just going to do the first two verses here. I had originally, last service did all four, but let's just do the first two. And this is a story of where Jesus gets very emotional over something that we wouldn't think he would get emotional over. And it's, he gets emotional over the city of Jerusalem. And so what you'll see in a moment is the writer Luke tells us this story in very short form of Jesus seeing the city and he gets emotional enough to where he weeps. So notice the first uh, line that Luke gives us. As he approached Jerusalem and saw the city... He wept over it and said, if you, even you, because it's Jerusalem, so there's some implication there about it's God's chosen city they should have known. If you, even you, had only known on this day what would bring you peace. So there's a story in there about a search for peace, but they're failing at it. So Jesus says, if you'd only known what it was that would bring that peace. And then he says, but now it is hidden from your eyes. So let's just break this down for a moment. Jesus is approaching Jerusalem. Geographically, he's coming into the city from the east. It's very important. He's coming into the city from the east. This is part of a larger story called the triumphal entry, if you're familiar with that. Jesus has been to Jerusalem many times. So it's not as though he saw the city for the first time and wept because he was like, wow, it's better than I imagined. He's been there many times, but this time will be his last. He'll have the Passover meal with his friends, the disciples. He'll go to the garden and pray. He will be arrested. He'll stand trial the next day. He'll die on a cross, and then they'll bury him in somebody else's tomb. And he knows this. So as he approaches Jerusalem, he knows, A, it's his last time, and B, he knows that there's already enough emotion on the front end of this visit to the city already. And so as he approaches Jerusalem, Jerusalem, he's already in this state of, this is it. This is the last time I'll be here. But then Luke tells us that he wept. He wept over the city. If you were here last Sunday, we uh, studied the story of Jesus at the funeral of his friend Lazarus, at which he also wept. It's the verse we all know, right? Jesus what? Wept. Jesus cried. But thanks to the Greek language... The wept in that version is different than the wept in this story. That story has a different version of cry than this one does. 
The version of wept in the Lazarus story is this empathetic cry. It's Jesus, uh, it's, you know, the description of that kind of crying is entering into the pain with someone. So I'm crying with you. I'm going with you into that place where you're hurting, and I want to hurt with you. Uh, Paul says in Romans 12 that we mourn with those who mourn. That's the kind of crying that happened at the funeral of Lazarus. Jesus is broken up by the loss of his buddy, and he knows that the two sisters have lost a brother, and so he weeps with them. This one's different. It says that he weeps over the city. So it's not specific. It's general. He sees the city, the general population, the general state of the city, and he's crying about it. He's not weeping with them, but for them. Another word for this would be pity. He has pity on them, or he feels pity. The greater word is lament. Do you know this word? This deep regret over what is, right? So he, somehow he sees, whatever he sees causes great lament. And so the question is, why is he lamenting over the city? Why does he approach Jerusalem, see it, and then just start crying? It's actually pretty simple. Notice what, notice what he says. If you, even you, Jerusalem, particularly the people who should have known who he was, so to speak, if you had only known to this day what would have brought you peace or what would bring you peace. And when Luke uses the word peace, it's never about political, physical peace. It is always this spiritual salvation-based peace. If you had only known what would bring that, but now it is hidden from your eyes. So Jesus is essentially weeping and lamenting over the fact that he's in their midst, but they don't care. They don't see it. I mean, he's healing, he's teaching, he's doing all the things that Jesus does, and they don't care. They don't see it. So his miracles are invisible to them. His words are somewhat inaudible to, him, to them. And it's as if they don't even know he exists. There's nothing that, and it's not like he gave them or he could give them any more. If you want to do some, some Bible uh, running around here, go to Matthew chapter 16 with me. If not, just hang on because I'll read it to you. This is a common occurrence with Jesus. Uh, in verse 1 of chapter 16, the Pharisees and Sadducees, these are religious leaders, came to Jesus and tested him by asking him to show them a sign from heaven. Right? This is pretty common. Jesus, do something. Make something disappear. Prove to us that you are who you say you are. Right? And then Jesus replies, it says, when evening comes, you say it will, be a fair, it will be fair weather, for the sky is red. And in the morning, today it will be stormy, for the sky is red and overcast. You know how to interpret the appearance of the sky, but you cannot interpret the signs of the time. This is a very nice way of Jesus cutting them down. He's like, you are so smart. You can interpret all these things, but you can't see what's right in front of you. Turn to Mark 8, just the next book over. These are the disciples of Jesus. They often struggled with who he was. So they're having this conversation about, the disciples are having this conversation about food. 
And then in verse 17, it says, Aware of their discussion, Jesus asked them, Why are you talking about having no bread? Do you still not see it or understand? Are your hearts hardened? Do you have eyes but fail to see or ears but fail to hear? And don't you remember when I broke the five loaves for the 5,000? How many basketfuls of pieces did you pick up? Awkward silence. Disciples say, 12. Oh, and when I broke the seven for the 4,000, how many baskets of pieces did you pick up? Seven. He said to them, do you still not understand? I mean, the stories like that, you can find them all through the Gospels. They go on and on, and time after time, Jesus showed his cards to people, and they didn't believe what they saw. So we have this picture of Jesus back in Luke approaching the city, and he weeps over it, lamenting over it. And though the words in the text may sound complicated, they're not really that complicated. They're actually quite simple. He's lamenting over the knowledge and the fact and the reality that lots of people, both then and of course now and throughout history, will never put their trust in him. Never. This breaks the heart of God. Does that make sense? So he's lamenting that even his own people don't accept him for who he is. And also that it's just a fact that many people won't. Many people will not put their trust in God. Many people will not answer the call into a relationship with him. And he recognized, again, if you look at the text, he recognized that they're seeking this kind of peace, but now it's just hidden. They've just gotten to a place in their life and in their thinking and in their behavior where they don't see the truth anymore. Now, he does go on to forecast in verses 43 and 44 the destruction of Jerusalem. It's a very cryptic couple of verses, which happened just 40 years after this moment. I mean, in the year 70, Rome decimated the city, tearing down the temple, in fact, banning Jews from living there eventually. And so he does lament over their future as well, but the engine of his lament was their current doubt and unbelief. That's what broke Jesus' heart. Their unwillingness to turn over their hearts to him and his ways was a source of much pain for him. Now, if we read this in the wrong way, Jesus sounds like a child. Like, why won't they play with me? Why won't they hang out with me? Why won't they accept me? But keep in mind that Jesus is not angry. That's next week. That's Jamie Vernon throwing tables on the stage. He's not angry. He's sad. He's lamenting. He doesn't need their approval. In fact, he's not lamenting over his loss, but their loss. He's hurt and sad over what what their condition is, not his. He's not angry. He's lamenting. Remember in John 3.16, where he's speaking to, uh, Jesus is speaking to Nicodemus, and he says those famous words, um, that for God so loved the world that he gave his one and only son, speaking of himself, and whoever believes in him. And if you've been here, you know that when we say the word believe, or when the Bible teaches us that belief is a key component to faith, it's not just about facts. It's not just about, okay, Jesus was real, A, he died on the cross, B, he rose from the dead, C, that's a part of it. But belief is about turning your life in the direction of Jesus. It's about trusting his ways. That's 
the ultimate definition of belief. So it's not this sort of Mickey Mouse, like I believe that, that all that's true. This is a very deep and wide word that whoever believes in him shall not perish but have eternal life. And that you may believe, and this is what Jesus is saying, that you and I may believe and trust him and put everything back in his hands. That is why he came. And so it stands to reason that if, if there are still people in this world who are ignoring that or avoiding that or just pushing it to the side, that he still stands today at the edge of our city weeping and lamenting and hoping. That it's not just this once-off, I'm sad, but it stands to reason that he's still there. As he approached Jerusalem and saw the city, he wept over it. So the question that surrounds this text is pretty obvious. Do I also stand with Jesus weeping for the city? Obvious pastoral question. Do I stand with him weeping? Because there is another way to look at the city. There is another way to look at people. Turn back to Jonah chapter 4. I mean, there is a different path. Do you know the story of Jonah, by the way? Uh, you may know it from, a kid, from being a kid, but um, basically Jonah was called by God. It's four chapters. He's called by God in the first chapter to go to Nineveh, which is in modern-day Iraq, go to Nineveh, because Nineveh was in bad shape morally and so forth. It wasn't a place you went on vacation. It's a place you avoided. And so God calls Jonah to go there and basically call them into a relationship with him. Missionary stuff. Jonah says in chapter 1 to God, forget it. I'm not going. So he, in chapter 1 it tells us that he goes down to the docks and he rents a boat and he heads to Tarshish, which is perhaps in Spain. But it's also a word that has this connotation of, I'm not coming back. It's another word or phrase for, I'll be, I'll be dead, I'll see you on the other side. Forget it. Find someone else to do it because I'm gone. And so Jonah boards a boat and he heads out. Now you know some of the story. He ends up in Nineveh after some pretty amazing events. Okay, God, I'm in Nineveh. And he actually does what God told him to do. And the sermon, so to speak, that Jonah preaches in Nineveh is just one sentence long. It's not even like this well thought out. It, it, it reads like compliance. Like he just sort of shows up and he's like, this is what God told me. Here, it's on a piece of paper. God told me to say this to you. Repent. But here's the thing about it. It worked. Right? Just before chapter 4, at the end of chapter three, 3, the king of Nineveh basically says, hey, whatever Jonah, whatever God Jonah is worshiping, that is now our God. And I know it's just four chapters and it's real choppy, but some amazing things happened in that community. And you think Jonah would be excited about it, but look at verses, uh, look at the first few verses of chapter 4. But Jonah was greatly displeased and became angry. And he prayed to the Lord, O oh Lord, is this not what I said when I was still at home? This is why I was so quick to flee to Tarshish. I knew that you are a gracious and compassionate God, slow to anger and abounding in love, a God who relents from sending calamity. Now, O oh Lord, take away my life, for it is better for me to die than to live. 
Now, that's a guy who doesn't like people. Right? I don't even care if they like you now. I still hate Why does he hate them? Well, the bottom line is he just doesn't think they're lovable. He just doesn't think God would care about such people. So the rest of the story is amazing. Uh, but in verses 10 and 11, these are the final shots here in the story. But the Lord said, you have been concerned about this vine, which you can read about in the verses before, that you did not tend or make it grow. God, you know, reminding him of who known, uh, God is and Jonah isn't. It sprang up overnight and died overnight. But Nineveh, he says, verse 11, has more than 120,000 people who, can't, who cannot tell their right hand from their left. That's a pretty scary community. And they also have many cattle as well, which reads like a what? But it's, it's about finances. There's a lot of economy there. There's agriculture and so forth. So God is addressing it here very relevantly, saying, look, this place is completely messed up but it's also influential. And then he asked this question to Jonah, should I not be concerned about that great city? End of story. Don't you like how the Bible does that? What happened to Jonah? We don't know. Next story, Micah, the book of Micah, has nothing to do with Nineveh. So Jonah's failure was to see people like God saw people. His failure was his inability and unwillingness to get with the program that God was leading. And the story, as you can see, it just doesn't end. It hangs there like a transition. The ending seems to be up to me and you, and perhaps that's the point of the story. In my Bible, I had drew an arrow down from the end of the story and wrote this. The answer to this question seems to be up to me. It's open-ended. It's always unfolding. And Jesus approached the city of Jerusalem, and he wept because he saw the people and the situation, and it caused great lament simply because he knew then and now that there would be all sorts of people, multitudes really, that would never acknowledge God trust him with anything. And that breaks his heart. So the question is obvious. Should it break our heart? Written on the wall, one of the walls in our office is the phrase that you're so familiar with if you've been around here. And it's the phrase, to serve the city as our vocation. It's a nice phrase, isn't it? But you know what? It's a very familiar phrase. Some of you may have just checked out when I said it. Oh, I see. God, neighbor, city, world. Got it. When I walk behind my van and see that like old cracked serve the city sticker, I think, man, that's a cool sticker. And then I get in and drive off. It's just too familiar. It's hard to get excited about something that I see all the time. But it's God's call on our church as we're in this place and wherever it is that we live to quote Jeremiah, to seek the peace of the city and to pray to the Lord for it. But oftentimes I miss that because it is just too familiar. And so how do you get to a place where you stand with Jesus like the guy behind my van and see it fresh like that? How do you get to that place? 
I don't know. I know that makes you excited. Thanks. But let me tell you something that I have been trying to do, and it may or may not work for you. Um, For those of you who know me very well, you know that I'm not very compassionate. For those of you who don't know me very well, you'll never be back. I I guess you'll never come back. (laughs) I just don't. It's not my top thing. It needs to get etched up there, but it's just not my top thing. And when it comes to benevolence, like needs that come in off the street, I do my best, but I fail a lot. However, over the last year or more, I've been trying something, just like in the studio, just working on something. It seems to be working, but again, I still drop the ball. And maybe you can apply this too. But when the homeless come into our building during the week and they need things, I've heard every story. You name it, I've heard it. I don't believe most of them. Um, because most of them are very similar. However, I do know what the Word of God says, and I'm supposed to sit there and serve and listen, even though it's hard for me. So what I do now is if they come in the building and we have some time, I just sit down with them, maybe in this room, chair facing chair, and I just look at them, right? And they tell their story, which could be true, could be false, could be a mixture of both. At this point, I don't care anymore. I just stare at them and listen. And they begin to unfold their needs. Sometimes they're too great. Sometimes I can take care of it right then. Sometimes I don't know what to do. But I just look at them and listen as they talk. And this is what I do. As they're talking, I try my best to imagine that this person, this man who lives on the bench down the street, is my son. Because my son is nine. He has a good life. He has like multiple Wii controllers. He has a guitar. Goes to a great school here in the city. He's got an awesome van to get in a carpool with, right? (laughs) Every time I pull up to pick him up from school, his friends just point and scream. He's like the rock star on the carpool, like, you know. He's got a good life. He's got parents who love him right? Lives in a nice little condo. It's good. It's all good for him. But you know what? I've handed out clothes at Jesus Place Inner City Mission to a lot of people who had good childhoods. And so I have to listen to this person like, okay, this is my son. He's 40, 50, 60, 70 years old, and he lives on a bench outside of a building down the street, and he has walked into my church. So I have to go there mentally, visually. And now, although he's 55 and African-American, he looks like me a little bit because he's my son. Like right under the eyes. Or maybe the way he sits. Or the way he won't look at me directly, just like his dad. And then he's sharing the story of like, the excuse and the reason, and, the, and, I, and I hear my son saying the same thing about why he lost his homework. Are you with me? You could say that as I'm listening, what I'm seeing is not so much this person anymore, but a, a picture of 
maybe me, like someone in my likeness, or would you say the word image? Maybe? Not identical, but in the image of? Does this sound familiar? In Genesis 1 and 2 and 3, we learn the story of God making man in what? His what? Image? And that's how God sees you? Dog, cat, tree, ravine, river, ah, he's got my eyes. She's got my heart. And so, I have to listen to people, image, 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 image. It's not just poverty. I was at Starbucks last week down on West Paces. Are you with me? Corporate widows, Westminster kids skipping school, money. I had a meeting. Tables are close together. Two men sitting right here having a conversation about life. They're complaining about their boss, about their house, about their pool, about their car, about everything. I was amazed. I was interested. I was listening. I was tweeting. (laughs) One says to the other, talking about his kids, high school kids, He said, you know what? I've done the math. I have a spreadsheet. And I've done the math. And when my kids graduate high school, they go to private school here in the the city. When they graduate high school, I I will have spent $1.3 million on their high school or on their schooling. It doesn't shock me too much. My wife works at that school. I know. But then he says this. And sometimes I just want to sit down with my kids and tell them, do you know what I could be investing my money in other than that? As a dad, as a pastor, as a former youth minister, I wanted to kill him. But it's my son. He does well in life. He gets what he wants, has a nice degree, makes a lot of money, sends his kids to the best schools, and then he's having a conversation with somebody and he says, I can't stand that I'm investing in my kids. What do you do? Image. When God sees us, when he sees you, he does not see you like Jonah sees you. Jonah, I love, I love this part. Can we go back? I'm sorry. I get on a roll here. Verse 5 of chapter 4, Jonah went out and sat at a place east of the city. There he made himself a shelter, sat in the shade, and waited to see what would happen to the city. (laughs) Far enough away not to get contaminated by its morality, but close enough to see it burn. We often think God sees us like this, like just far enough away not to be contaminated by us, but close enough to watch us suffer. But Jesus stands at the the first view of a city in the midst of destruction, and he weeps. And he will go into that city and die for it. And it's all about image, the image of God grafted into who you are, and he laments that you would never come home to the Father. 
So some closing questions, just three. What would happen if we saw the city like we should? The places where you live, the places you work, the people you're in contact with, what would happen if you saw them like we should? What would happen if we wept over the city? Some of, some of our friends in the church that live um, outside of the city, you have an advantage. You get to drive into the city on Sunday morning, and what do you do when you see the buildings? Maybe, maybe there should be lament. Not every week. You might be depressed at that point, but just this kind of, okay, we're not just going to church. We're part of something that's weeping. What if you changed the Lord's Prayer to say, your kingdom come, your will be done in Atlanta as it is in heaven? God and I talked. You can do that. Would you pray that prayer all week? Just get up and do the prayer. Our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come, your will be done in Atlanta as it is in heaven. Do that every day. Because that's what the prayer is. Right? Right here. Heaven happening and unfolding right here, right now. Pray that prayer this week. Let's stand and pray, and we'll close in a couple songs. Father, thank you for your care for us, and um, even though you see us uh, struggle and you see us sometimes make horrible decisions, um, unlike Jonah, you do not run from us, but you come near to us, you suffer with us, and you weep over us. God, well up in our hearts this desire to feel the same way you feel about some things and maybe some people in our lives that we just see as distractions, we see as inconveniences. Help us to see ourselves in them or our, our sons and daughters and help us to see them the way that you see them. Rich or poor, angry, peaceful, whatever. God, do you give us your eyes this week? And as we pray, as we tweak the model prayer just a little bit, just insert our neighborhood, our building name, our street name right in there, that you'll begin to open our eyes to how we can also stand with you and lament over what you see. We love you and we pray all these things in your mighty name. Amen.